I, uh, I appreciate um, Chad taking that time to draw us into an intentional um, space where we just meditate and we just dwell on the power and the presence of God. I, I remember um, when I was in seminary, I had a class, and uh, the, the goal of the class was to learn and to deepen our spiritual pursuit, um, but in the midst of kind of craziness. It was spirituality and missions. This was, the, this was the purpose and the name of the class. And the goal, one of the goals that the professor had us do was just in different uh, parts of the course, we would actually go and have a spiritual retreat somewhere. And the, in the beginning of the course was probably the easiest time that we went on a spiritual retreat. We went up into the mountains somewhere into some quiet uh, house, some quiet cabin on the middle of nowhere, and we were just able to intentionally dwell on the presence of God. And for six hours, we were just there, and we were quiet, and it was easy. <laughs> but then towards the end of the course, uh, she sent us off to uh, some destinations that were very different. She sent us into the middle of downtown L.A., where we would spend four hours walking the streets. And as hon- you know, horns are honking, and people are cutting each other off and cussing at each other, people flipping the finger out, you had to figure out how to be still. How to dwell in the presence of God. Uh, and then the last was going to Las Vegas. Walking around down street, uh, downtown Las Vegas on the strip, you look to your left and there's this 50-foot poster of a half-naked woman. And there you have to figure out, dwell on the presence and the peace of God. And the secret is always intentional prayer. Intentional, directed prayer where your heart, not just your words, but your heart seeks the presence of God in the midst of craziness, in the midst of noise and chaos around you. So I want to start this morning before I even say any more. I want us to enter into that presence of God in prayer. Join me, guys, as we, as we just um, quiet our hearts from the noise. And dwell on the presence of God. Heavenly Father, we just come before you. As people seeking something. And Father, there is so much noise in this world. There's so many things going on in our individual lives. So much crisis. Much pain. So many distractions. So many pleasures. All these things trying to pull our attention somewhere else in this moment. And Father, I ask that you interrupt all of those. So that God, we might just breathe. And rest and relax. In the comfort of your goodness and in your love and in your sovereignty. Speak to us this morning, Father. God, I pray that you speak to my heart this morning that it might overflow, that your word would overflow to all of us. God, interrupt any agenda that I have that is not of you. Don't let me say a word that isn't something you want me to say. God, we thank you for your love, your peace, and your presence, and we just... Pray for your power here this morning. And Father, I ask that the words of my mouth, 
and the meditations of our heart be holy and pleasing to you, Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. So let's start with a question. I like questions. <laughs> you'll, you'll discover that over the, the coming weeks. I like questions. But I'll start with, with a question. How do you deal with stress? How do you really deal with stress? Stress is extremely common. And it's incredibly problematic. And, it's, and, it's, and, and for some older generations, it was a problem. But if you look towards younger generations, you realize it's even a bigger problem. Right, as we look at as the youth growing up, we see that they are perhaps one of the most stressed out generations emerging right now. And you might even just think, um, what is the example you set for the, for the younger generations about how to deal with stress? Because a lot of times, kids who are most stressed out have examples of parents who are always stressed out. And they have no idea how to deal with stress. And so their kids then have no idea how to deal with stress. Well, what is the model you give to the next generation? Stress is incredibly problematic. It's very high today's generation, today's, in today's culture and society. Uh, anxiety is higher than ever. It causes depression. For some, it goes so far, it causes suicidal thoughts. Right? And for many of us, we, we just kind of, we don't know how to deal with uh, fears or anxieties or uncertainties in any healthy kind of a way, so we repress them. We ignore them. We, we ignore them. And that slowly becomes draining. It slowly becomes exhausting. We don't know how to deal with these kinds of fears, these burdens, these insecurities, whatever's going on in our life, so we just kind of suppress them. We, we, we push them aside, we ignore them, um, and, or, or we think of we can overwork ourselves to resolve the crisis in front of us. We are stressed out creatures. Human beings are stressed out creatures. And this leads, for many of us, this leads to so much restlessness within our souls. It constantly leads to the sense of disappointment. Life isn't where we want it to be. A life of fear. A state of straight-out unhappiness. Uh, The words of Martin Lloyd-Jones ring very true to me. He said, he once said, you know, famous preacher, he once said that the greatest need of our society is a still heart, a quiet heart one that is not wrapped up in all these burdens and all these fears and all these anxieties, that isn't wrapped up with all these things that it needs to do, but is quiet. It's still at peace. A heart rooted in peace. Not stressed, not anxious for tomorrow. Quiet and still. How do you get there? I repeat that question. How do you you deal with stress? Really, how do you deal with stress? What have you learned about how to deal with stress? To deal with those moments you feel like everything is collapsing in on you. Those moments when you feel like you have absolutely no control of what is going on right now. You have no control of the events that are unfolding next week. How do you deal with this, this sense of, of, of anxiety over that? And in a moment, everything that you've built could just tumble and break and collapse in an instant. You feel that, you recognize that sense of drowning. The sense of just, I don't know how to breathe. 
I don't know how to get myself out of the burden that I'm in. I can't. I don't know what to do with these relationship problems, these financial problems, these career problems, whatever it is. That that sensation of drowning, being collapsed in, knowing that it is outside of your control. Um. We, people have different uh, resolutions to that, right? So some of us uh, just turn our gaze to just happy thoughts. I feel like there's this kind of a movement going on right now where it's just like, I don't want to think about negative thoughts. So whenever my, I get stressed out or burdened or chaotic, I just think happy thoughts. I just direct my attention to all the positive things going on in my life, and I try not to dwell on those negative things or those negative feelings or those worries. I try not to dwell on those things. Instead, I just want to push my attention to all the positivity we're simply just redirecting our attention. That's not a resolution. To simply just direct your attention to something else is just to ignore the problem. It isn't a resolution. It isn't anything that's ever going to solve the crisis at hand. Now, some of us have a different mentality. We think we can work ourselves out of stress. Or maybe we just know that, hey, you know what, I'm stressed, but the biggest way I deal with this is that I just work and work and work and work and work. And when I'm working 16 hours a day, I'm not worried about anything. I'm just thinking about what i got to fix right in front of me. And so we just distract ourselves. Or we lie to ourselves and believe that we have some kind of control. And if I work hard enough, I can fix it. If I busy myself enough, I can resolve every problem. And it's amazing, though, with so much technology we have today, right? We've become incredibly efficient at managing these tiniest tasks in our lives. Right? You can pay bills from your phone. Right, like your whole calendar can be in your phone. You could just acquire about any bit of information in moments on your phone. Right, we've become very efficient at some of these small tasks, but yet we're one of the most stressed out populations we've known. In history, perhaps. I mean, we can't speak for all of history, but we are incredibly stressed out. And all of our efforts, we do not have resolutions to life's biggest problems. Right? And all the technological advancements, we do not have resolutions to, to, to our, the most critical problems in our lives. Sure, I can pay my, my, my mortgage from my phone. I, could, I can cook a, a, a frozen chicken in 40 minutes. But death is just as real. And it's just as inescapable. Relationship problems are just as real. Our anxieties are just as present, maybe even larger now than they were for generations 100 years ago. No technological advancements offers us any kind of real hope or peace for my eternity. Right? I wholly and entirely am convinced of this truth, that God is the only real, I talk about real, I mean the word real, I really want to focus on that, Not just a temporary solution, but I mean God is the only real solution, absolute solution to our problems, to our real problems in life. And so what we really need is not greater advancement, is not greater policies or technologies, but divine intervention. What we really need is divine intervention in our life. Until we get that, I don't, I don't know if we will ever find true peace. And if we fail to believe that, then I think we fail to have an accurate understanding of who God is. Last week, we started this series, Unshakable Faith. 
right? And it's, we're reading through the Psalms, studying the Psalms, because the, the Psalms, as you read them, you realize these are prayers, these are, worship, this is, these are words of worship from people who are going through some of the most chaotic and some of the biggest crises in their lives. These are prayers of people who are, are facing um, national turmoil, depression, brokenness. And they wrestle with doubts. They wrestle with real, honest questions about faith. There, but there's this, this steadfastness in the prayers that recognize what I really want, what I really need is God, is divine action in my life. And we want to be studying these, these psalms as, as, as a means of using them as an example for ourselves as we think about our own crises and our own lives. That we might see these as an example of how do we mimic that kind of unshaking faith even as we experience loss, even as we experience fires and earthquakes and war. We know where our real hope stands. Well, turn with me, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Psalm 46. If you don't, it's it's fine, it'll be on the screen behind me. And we're just going to read a couple verses at a time, and then kind of expand on them, and then read a few more verses. You can just follow along with me. Psalm 46. Hear the word of God. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. I want to stop there for a moment, actually. (laughs) Before I read on in this, before we read any more uh, from Scripture today, um, do, do yourself a favor and do, do me a favor as well. Um, read this as God's word to you. This is not an archaic text. These aren't just words to be comfortable with. These are words of God to you. God is our refuge. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives away. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its, as its swelling. Right? These, these are very dramatic imageries. Right? Just visualize these things. The mountains are moved. These high peaks on the earth are moved into the heart of the sea. They are drowning. Right, they are drowning. Right, but know that this is not literal. This is not, the author here is not describing something literally that's happening uh, in the life of Israel. But it's this feeling that the natural world around us is collapsing. We are living in chaos. The author is saying that though the world is falling apart, the things that we can trust as being secure, mountains, are going right into the heart of the sea. The safest places that we could imagine from water are now the most dangerous places. But in the midst of that, we don't have a reason to fear. There's nothing to be afraid of because of our God. No fear of natural phenomena. And it continues in verse 4. And it says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. 
Now, we're, we're not entirely certain. There's a lot of guesses, but we're not entirely certain about um, what is going on in the life of Israel when these words were written. A lot of times, um, you know, uh, scholars can very easily look at the Psalms and figure out what period of Israel's history was this prayer, was this worship, uh, this worship song written. We're not certain about in this, in this psalm. We don't know for certain. There's a lot of discussions, though, and a lot of disagreements even about what's going on. This psalm was written during, but we all know that this psalm was written during a time in which the city of Jerusalem was threatened by its enemies. That's one thing that most scholars are pretty, um, uh, uh, they agree on. Does it speak of the nation's rage and the kingdom's totter? It just kind of speaks of this imagery that there's something stirring outside the walls of Israel that's terrifying. Right? And there's a, there's a little, I mean, just a couple seconds brief thought about the history of Israel as a nation. So shortly after David uh, becomes king and is passed on to Solomon, the war, I mean, the, the, there's a civil war that breaks out into to Israel. And you get the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And that war between those two kingdoms go on for about 250 years before uh, the Assyrians, this outside empire, this warmongering, war-hungering, bloodthirsty empire comes in and just annihilates pretty much everything of what we, what we understand was the northern kingdom. And it was terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying to be a, 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 an Israelite, whether northern or southern at that point in time. Right? And then that went on for about 150 years where the Assyrians had conquered the northern kingdom. And then the Babylonians, a bigger and even worse empire, comes and destroys the Assyrians and takes of all, of, all of Israel with it, including the southern kingdom. And then the Persians come and they take everything. And then the Greeks and then the Romans and then the Romans break out in a civil war. I mean, it's just this messiness in the life of Israel. It isn't one season that their life is just like, oh, conflict, and then everything else is beautiful and wonderful. The entire life of Israel is messy. And this psalm is written at one of those periods, likely, likely right before the Assyrians came and wipes out the northern Northern Empire. It's likely when that's happening, but we're not certain. We just know there's something scary outside the walls of Israel. But then in verse 4, we see something that we may not understand right away. In verse 4, it says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. What's that talking about? It's poetic imagery. And it's rooted in one of the features of Jerusalem as a city. There was a stream that went right through it. A stream of clear, clean water. Something secure. Something soothing. Right? And in Jerusalem's citizens, that stream was an image of peace. It was an image of peace for them. Not only peace, but also provision. That's where you get water. In the midst of this national crisis, in the midst of these nations going off on each other, there is this tiny, peaceful reminder in the heart of the city. You're okay. You're okay. Yes, the nations rage, but there's peace in the heart of the city. We're not afraid. We have reasons to be calm in the midst of chaos. Let's keep reading, picking up in verse 8. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolation on the earth. He makes wars cease. To the end of the earth, he breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. 
Right, another uh, piece in this is prayer in this song pulls this very thick imagery. It depicts this clear idea that God is this just magnificent creature coming and ending all human war machines. Now, God wasn't literally doing this. I think the, the, the Psalms are full of, of figurative language, poetic language. God wasn't literally doing this. There's certainly times in the life of Israel in which God um, intervened in very miraculous and in powerful ways uh, in, in the military action, but there's nothing that we understand of going on uh, in, in this season of Israel's life that we think that, that's, that God was literally breathing fire out of his nostrils on chariots. That isn't what the author is trying to get us to understand. What the author is trying to express in this prayer is this. It's recognizing that God is entirely and completely sovereign. That means he is in complete and entire control over the nations. There is no bow that stands against, uh, has any kind of a threat against the will of God. It is essentially saying no human army, no nation, no government has any kind of real power nor is it any kind of a real threat. Sooner or later, every nation will be crippled in its war efforts, and God will shatter every weapon of destruction. Nothing can resist his will. That's the imagery that that the author is wanting us to understand in this prayerful place. Nothing can resist his will. Um, The Assyrians were known for their chariots. So the imagery of God uh, shattering the chariots with fire is really just speaking to that. Even, the, even a nation's greatest asset is no match. It's no match for the will of God. Now we come to, I think, what I believe is to be the most beautiful words in all the Psalms. Not just this Psalm, but in all the Psalms. My opinion. But words that I think we, we really should meditate on day and night. We should really meditate on day and night. Uh, but there's a transition that takes place here in the psalm. Because up until this point in time, the psalm, it, it's more of like a, a worship leader or, or someone praying or leading Israel into a certain kind of a prayer. But then there's this transition that takes place here. It's no longer from a human's perspective. It's no longer a human saying the words, but now we are reading the very words of God. We're hearing the very voice of God. He's speaking first person. Right, picking up in verse 10, it's what, he, it's what it says. Right, from the, word, the words of God, it says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in, in, in the earth. And then the psalm finishes and it says, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now, that first part of verse 10 is a profound word of God for us. Be still and know that I am God. Um, I always enjoy looking at various translations, and if you look at various translations on this particular verse, you see different things. Many translations use, you know, say, be still. It's what I'm reading right now. Many will say, cease striving. Stop trying. There's some translations that say, let go. Right, um, the JPS, the Jewish Publication Standard, uh, probably the most uh, go-to source for, for, for modern-day Jews in terms of when they're reading uh, the Hebrew Bible in English. It translate, translates it as, let be. Let be. 
All of them, I think, are accurate to the Hebrew. They all kind of depict a very accurate idea here. The Hebrew word is harpu. And it literally is like gift slack. Like you're holding on to a rope for your life. Harpoos, let go. Stop trying so hard. Stop trying so hard. Maybe that's the word you need to hear this morning. Stop trying so hard. It's the sense of just ease up. Even stop. Relax. Breathe. You're okay. When we used to hold services at Redemption, we, you know, we, we were a church in a box. So everything we had was in, a, was in a trailer, packed up in a trailer, and it was full of tons of equipment. Um, we had pipe and drape, we had our lighting equipment, we had sound equipment, we had our kids' ministry, everything was in there. It was this big old trailer, and we actually parked it up here in the, in the corner at Bridges Lot, and every Sunday I'd come with my truck, I'd pick it up, and it's just, you could feel the weight of it. As you drove around in the truck, you'd pull it up to wherever we were, at the you know, various places we were meeting at, uh, towards the end, we're meeting at an elementary school. And we'd go and you set it up, and there's so much stress that went into that. There's so much stress in being a mobile church, church in a box. Um, you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> you never know if you're going to open it up and find something cracked or broken, soundboard missing, somebody forgot to put it in the last Sunday. <laughs> you're worried about trailers tipping over, and you think, and you think that's, uh, I'm exaggerating that, that's actually a very common problem for churches in boxes that people don't know how to actually kind of line up the weight properly. So they take a big turn and the entire trailer tips over on the way on a Sunday morning service. It's a wonderful thought, <laughs> right? right? Uh, but we would pack it up and it's always high stress. We'd take it, we'd take it back here and my wife would often be with me in the, in the truck as we would park the trailer, we would unhitch it and we'd start to drive off. Um, and, and within about 50 feet, there's this like deep breath I would take. Right? I just I'd let it out. Um, you could feel the difference when driving the truck. All of a sudden, the, the truck felt like a feather. Right? It just felt like there was nothing there. It was towing nothing. And there's a sense of release. There's a sense of letting go, relaxing. Now, here's the thing. This psalm, the way it speaks to me, isn't to say, oh, let go after the trailer's dropped off. It says, be still in the midst of it. From the moment you pick up the trailer... The moment you open the doors and you try to pull everything out, be still. Relax. During the service, relax. Even if the trailer tips or the soundboard is broken or you don't have enough people showing up, whatever goes on, be still. Relax. There's not an event in your life that can happen that is outside of the sovereignty of God. We are always rushing in our life. I was watching my daughter yesterday. She is so busy. Always running around, always moving. Things. You know, and it's funny, I heard my, my dad say, we were visiting my parents, my dad was like, she is such a busy little girl. And I think it's funny because that's often the way people describe me. I'm always busy. I'm always thinking, I get, get distracted easily. I get bored really easily in life. Be somewhere for three months and be like, now what? Right, but there's this sense of always, I'm always wanting to rush. I'm always wanting to do something else. I'm always wanting to, to find the next thing, to do the next thing. We are so busy, always rushing, regularly stressed, trying to be more, trying to do more. And right in the center of that, God says, be still. In our busyness, in our stress, in our disappointment, 
and our sorrows and our joys. Be still. Stop. Right where you are, stop. Breathe. Relax. Redirect that stream of thoughts that's just running in your mind. Stop stressing, stop fighting, and relax, release. And then, and then it says, and know that I am God. Know that I am God. Um, translations don't, don't differ here. They really hardly differ here. I don't want to state that. I'm sure you can find a translation that says something different. But generally speaking, this, this is pretty normative. It's pretty normative that it says, know that I am God. Because the Hebrew is very clear. It's very simple. Uh, but in, in, in English, we have layers to knowledge, right? When we talk about, uh, uh, when we say the word to know, there's layers to that. If I were to say, do you know Abraham Lincoln? Do you know of you, you two? Do you know of, right? I could, I could just kind of list off things about, that you might know. People uh, overseas, music artists, actors, actresses, people of history. And we would say, yeah, yeah, I know Abraham Lincoln. Right? But really what we're thinking is we know of him. We know a stream of little facts, maybe, or little details about him or his life. Right? We just know something about him. But if, but if, if I were to say, I know my wife, I'm talking about something very different. I'm talking about an intimate knowledge. I know my wife probably better than any human being does. I know her. I know her very well. Right, there's an intimacy of that kind of a knowledge. There's something deep. Right, but there's layers to that word to know. The Hebrew word to know is yada. And the word that's used here is yada. I always find it easy to remember because it kind of sounds like Yoda. Hopefully you remember that now forever. Um, it isn't just a feeling about God. To know God isn't just this feeling about God. It's just, oh, in the midst of my craziness, my busyness, and my disappointment, I just redirect my attention up to this fuzzy idea about God, that there's something up there in the clouds, maybe it's electricity, I don't know what, but it has control, I suppose, it has power, it's old, I guess, and it's not just redirecting my attention to some positive juju up in the air. That isn't what this psalm is saying. It says, no, with a sense of intimacy, know that I am God. Know what my heart beats for. Know what I love, what I value, what I cherish. Know who I am, what I do, and what I have done. Know me. I am God. It's something profound. It's a deep knowledge. Uh, this is why a deep study and, and, a, and a, an intimate study of Scripture is so necessary for the life of Christians. It isn't just so that you can rattle off biblical facts and sound smart. It's the knowledge of God does something to the way we live. It changes the way we think. It changes our attitudes, our worries. It changes us. It shows us the depth of who God is shows us what God's heart beats for, what he loves. shows us what he has done. And it gives us a sense of what he will do, and it gives us the promises of what he will do. And sometimes it even shares with us why he does it. It shows us 
who you are to him. But can I just go on a tangent for a moment? Is that okay? Um, I think it's a tragedy that so few Christians have a deep knowledge of Scripture. Don't, don't raise your hands, but how many of you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, more than once, or even twice? And yet these are the stories this is the heartbeat within Scripture that shows us the life of Jesus. I think it's a tragedy that so many Christians and throughout America have such a little, such a small grasp of what the Bible is, of the stories within the Bible. You know, if you were to spend five, six, seven minutes a day about read three chapters of the Gospels every day, you'd get through all of them in a month. Imagine if you committed to that over, over, over a, a year. You'd be an expert on the Gospels. And there's something sad to me, there's something tragic to me that I think so, um, so many Christians, maybe it's the youngness, I don't know. There's so many Christians today, I think, that just lack in their depth and understanding of Scripture. That is certainly going to overflow in their practical lives. Certainly going to overflow. Because you see, the knowledge of God brings the peace of God. The knowledge of God brings the peace of God. Be still and know that I am God. Theology isn't just useless thinking, it's practical at its core. When you know, when you have this yadah of God, it brings peace. When your mind is fully focused on God, on who he is, on what he has done, on what he can do, on what he will do, when you grasp this big picture of God that the scripture has for us, there is absolutely no room for fear, panic, stress, or worry. There's no room for it. There's just no room for it. This isn't a false peace either. See, like when, when, I, when I talk about that in the beginning of just kind of, I want to turn my gaze away off of anything negative and just only think happy thoughts in my life. That's a false peace. Because you might be in the middle of a very crummy situation in your life, and now you're just telling yourself or ignoring the problems and thinking only about good things. That's a false peace. You have no comfort whatsoever from that. It's a total sense of false peace. It's just letting yourself focus on being positive by ignoring the problem. It's a manipulation of the mind. But the peace of God that comes from the knowledge of God is not that. Because you're, you're, it's a knowledge of a reality. Not just a redirecting of your attention. One of the, one of the most beautiful things about the gospel that I find, and one of the most beautiful things about the gospel is that it deals with the facts of life. The gospel deals head-on with the facts of life. Scripture is very clear. In this world, you're going to deal with all kinds of problems. You're going to face all kinds of problems. There are going to be very dark times in your life. Even as we just, I just talked about the chaos of the nations raging in the life of Israel. 
If you think about nations, sometimes the right way to read uh, the Old Testament, or one way, I shouldn't say the right way, but one way to read the Old Testament is to think of this nation of Israel as an individual. <laughs> and you could relate to that individual, you know, you relate to the nation as if it was your own life. And their life was full of chaos. But you could pick up all these stories throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, and you're going to see that their life was messy. Messy, messy life. Full of brokenness, full of pain, full of hardship. There is death, there's depression, there's sickness, there's chaos. The world is broken. It's a clear message of the gospel. You live in a broken world. You will get old. You will get sick. Well, you might get old. But you will get sick. You might get sick, but you will die. You are going to deal with death in your life. You're going to deal with death of, of, of siblings, of parents, children. What, you're going to deal with all kinds of brokenness. You live in a broken world. Natural disasters exist. Scripture doesn't pretend that. It doesn't. And it never tries to convince you that it doesn't. In fact, it says, go in the heart of it. For the words of Jesus. I send you like sheep among wolves. I send you amongst people who will hate you, who are going to kill you, because you identify yourself with me. It's not a life of peace. It isn't. But Scripture teaches us something else. It teaches us that our comfort isn't in perfect circumstances. Instead, our comfort is in our God. You see, it, it, it's, you read that psalm and you think about it. It doesn't say... Mountains are not going into the heart of the sea. The earth is not trembling. No, it's stating that life is chaotic and things are crazy. And yet we have a, have a, have a safe refuge to retreat to. And yet we can be still. Right? Our comfort isn't in perfect circumstances, it's in our God. The gospel leads us right into the reality of life but gives us full confidence that present circumstances are no match against our God. Our present circumstances, whatever they are, good or bad, are no um, match for our God. An intimate knowledge of God leads us to understand at least these three things. It leads us to know who God loves. It leads us to know that God has absolute power. And it leads us to know that God has a perfect plan. And you're in it. With those three things, when you understand and you grasp the love and the power and the plan of God, we can trust that whatever happens, whatever happens, God is taking us to the greatest possible destination. Amen? Everything in this life is working out perfectly to demonstrate God's absolute power and love. That's a profound thought to dwell on. And I think when you get that, when you really understand that, when you have that good and accurate theology, you don't care about present circumstances. You don't really have a reason to care about present circumstances. 
but you don't care about him nearly as much. What on earth are you afraid of when you understand God's love and power? What on earth do you have to be afraid of when you understand God's love and power? Even when we suffer, we can rejoice, as Paul rejoiced, that the present pain is a part of God's perfect story of redemption for us. And this is why Paul writes in Romans 8.18. He says, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There is nothing that can happen to you in this world or any other world that even remotely compares or can compromise God's plan. But the hope of God isn't just this eternal thing either. And sometimes I think, uh, we, we think of it that way. We think of it, this is just, God's goodness comes after we die. So in this life it sucks, but in the next life, okay, that's when it gets good. That isn't really the promise though. I mean, that isn't the full picture of the promise. While God never promises us a, a life free from pain, we know that God loves us here too. God's love for us doesn't start after we die. It's here present. He is working on our good here too. We can trust God. Not just with eternity, but with our present life as well. While our eternity should be far more important to us, if you understand what eternity means, it should be far more important to us, we can also grasp and take comfort that God loves us here and now just as much. Nothing can happen to you that God doesn't control that God does not see as fitting to be good to your life. Now sometimes, sometimes that's a hard thought. Because when you're dealing with loss, or when you're dealing with some kind of a disappointment, it's hard to grasp that, this is, this is, that God thought this is good for you. It's hard. It's hard to understand that. Or at least it's hard to accept that. But once again, that good, that true knowledge of God brings about the peace of God. And the older we get, the better we understand that. Or the least, the more we trust God, the more we get to understand that. Um, to be still and to know that, that God is God means that we, we trust that there's nothing that can go on in this life that is outside of God's plan for us. Nothing stands, against, nothing stands a chance against his will. We let go of the burden of thinking. Because to be still know that a God, it means this. It means that we let go of the burden of thinking that everything depends on us. Let go of that idea. Everything depends on us. No, it doesn't. It means we take opportunity to see those things that, that stress us and re- release it to God to be still. That we take those as opportunities to practice being still. Nothing else. To recognize that God is in complete control regardless of natural disasters, regardless of chaotic uh, politics, regardless of wars and failing health, means that there is nothing to fear for those who love God. Now, I, I want to wrap up with a few final thoughts that I think, that I think speak... Um, at least that, that spoke deeply to me. 
And the first one is this. As we read this psalm, we see that this is a prayer of people who feel like their life is out of control. Anyone relate to that? Anyone relate to that sensation of feeling like your life is out of control? The earth is falling apart. Floods, chaos is around us, kingdoms wanting to conquer us, to wreck us, people wanting to ruin our lives. Our life is a big fat mess right now. Right? That's the context of this prayer. Now, we all have those times in our life, and if we learn from the psalm, we learn a very important lesson. We don't know that God is in control until we don't have control. You'll never understand that God is in control until you experience the sensation that I don't have control. Because here's the reality. If you're in control, God isn't. And if God is in control, you aren't. So if you have this good theology, this right understanding that God is completely sovereign over your life, what does that then mean? You're not. You don't have control of your life. You might have some kind of an influence. I mean, you, you might have control of your actions. <laughs> Think about it, if you're riding a horse, completely untamed wild horse, you might have a... Have, have a be able to think that you can control the bridle, some kind of control of that horse, turning its head right or left, and think, oh, I can control the horse. No, you don't. You have no control of that animal. You might think you can train it. Many people do, but you don't control that animal. In the same way, we don't, we, we, sometimes we live with this false sense that we have control over our life because we have some kind of an influence because of our own actions. You don't control your life. Everything doesn't depend on you. And you're never going to understand that God is fully in control until you understand that you don't have control. It's only logical. We don't share control. God doesn't share control. He doesn't. If we are in control, God isn't. If God is in control, we aren't. It's one or the other. So as long as you feel that you have some control over the circumstances of your life, that you get to determine trajectories, you believe God isn't in control. You believe that. So in those moments when you're trying your hardest and you're like, I can't control what's going on in my life, understand that those become opportunities for us to deepen our faith. For us to test our faith, to stretch our faith, to recognize it isn't about me. This isn't about me. Our destiny, our hope, God is the solution, not us. It isn't about me. Um, Incredible change comes when we stop trying to control the things we don't have power of. And we take control of the things we do have power of. And the reality is this, you don't have control of so many things in your life. There are so many things in your life you have absolutely no control of. Most of your life is out of control. But the critical lesson for us is this, it's one thing we certainly do have control of, and it's our prayer. It's our prayer. Be still and know that I am God. It's a prayer for our heart. 
It's a prayer to our heart. It's words spoken to our hearts. The shift of attitude of our heart. Part of prayer is a surrender of control. It's a recognition. I, I, God, I, it's beyond me. It's beyond me. I'm out of control. I don't, I don't have, I, I can't do this. I'm just, take it. It's you taking something in your life when you pray to God. It's you taking something in your life and you're saying, I, I don't have control of this God and I accept that. I might work hard. I might be able to, to do right things, but I, don't, I ultimately do not have control. And it's our way of saying, here, Father, I surrender it. Take it, please. And that becomes a powerful way of creating or at least bringing peace into our life. Prayer is the bridge between panic and peace. For the Christian, prayer is the bridge between panic and peace. Prayer is what takes us to the sense of real peace where we understand, you know, I don't have control. I accept that. But I also accept that whatever happens, I am in the will, the sovereign will of God. Prayer is what takes us to that real peace, that surrender, that hope of God, that knowledge of God, what leads us to this true sense of peace. And I want to be honest, and I want to be clear, and this is a whole other thought I don't want to dig into, but just to be clear, I'm not saying be idle. I'm not saying be idle, and I'm not saying that's the right attitude of our heart. Um, Augustine wrote, Prayer, Pray like everything depends on God, and work as if everything depends on you. I'd modify that a little bit, but I think it speaks to something. But, but nothing in Scripture says that um, all I do is offer up this prayer and then miracles just pour around in my life and I don't have to try. I just pray that I can lose weight and I can eat pizookis all day long and it'll just happen. That, there's nothing in Scripture that speaks to that. Likewise, there's nothing in Scripture that says miracles happen um, only when I try hard enough. Right, So there's an old uh, expression within Greco-Roman theology that God favors the bold. No. That's not true within, within Christian thinking. That, that's not true within, within biblical truth. You don't work hard enough and God's going to do something for you. That's not how it works either. So there's this weird tension. <laughs> that in a way, it's like your work matters, but at the same time, um, everything really is ultimately in the control of, of God. It's a weird tension. I'm going to be honest. It's a weird one. We work, but work trusting and knowing that God is ultimately sovereign and not you. That's the best, the best two-minute answer I can give to that problem. I want to close with this. I want to close with us going back to this, this initial question that I asked us this morning. How do you deal with stress? How do you deal with stress? How do you deal with those times in your life when you feel like you've got no control? You feel like your life is collapsing in on itself. Things are a mess. Or maybe you're just looking at your six-month, two-year, five-year plan, and you're like, I'm clueless. And I'm terrified of that because usually I like to know everything, and I'm terrified that I don't know what's happening in six months of my life. I don't know what's happening with my health or my daughter's health or my son's health or whatever. When you deal with those times when you feel broken, when you feel helpless, when you feel scared or uncertain, how do you deal with those times? 
And perhaps maybe another question for you to reflect on in this moment right now is what is stressing you today? What's worrying you today? What is it in your life that's making you anxious right now that God is saying to you, be still? Be still. Be still, Don. Be still, Tom. Be still, Matt. Be still, Lucy. What is in your life that God is speaking to you right now? And take a moment, visualize it. And think that through. What are the earthquakes in your life? What are the floods that are rushing in? Can you visualize it? Can you feel it? I'm going to lead us into a, a, a time of prayer, and in that time the band's going to come back up. But, but I want to just notice my wording. I said, I'm going to lead us into prayer. And I mean that in a very, very intentional way. I'm not praying for us, and I'm not praying on behalf of us. Right now I'm going to lead us into prayer. And and I'm going to lead us into prayer, and in that, there's going to be a moment which I will just go quiet. And that's your opportunity to go before your God and to practice being still. You can quietly pray to your Father. Take that step of surrender. Whatever it is. Whatever it needs to be, take that opportunity to surrender whatever is stressing you this morning. Surrender that false sense of control. So I said, I'm going to lead us into prayer, and then I'm going to go into a moment of just silence, and that's your moment before you and your God, and then I will close us up. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we love you, Lord. Father, we love you, and and God, in this moment right now, I thank you. I thank you that you are God and I am not. I am thankful that you are in control of my life and I am not. God, I'm thankful for the, the, the problems you bring to my life because I know you have a plan. I know you have a purpose. God, work in our hearts and our heads right now so that we might be able to visualize, we might just grasp what are, what are those earthquakes, what are those floods in our life right now that's shaking us up? What is it that you, you speak to our hearts about and say, be still? Father, speak to us right now. Father, and I just ask that you just allow each one of us right now to speak honestly to you from our heart to your ear.